Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that considers all aspects of cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories with David Campbell, including Is My Airbag Safe? and one of the great recent leaders in car manufacturing who saved Fiat and Chrysler from bankruptcy, Sergio Marcioni, dies. We have an interview with the charismatic keynote speaker from the 2018 Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management National Conference. He is from New York and it is Paul Steely White. And Brian Smith, Errol Smith and I take a high-spirited look at some unusual stories of the day, including a man named Benedict eggs some cars. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now to begin the program, let's have the news. Sergio Maccioni, the charismatic and demanding CEO who engineered two long-shot corporate turnarounds to save carmakers Fiat and Chrysler from near-certain failure, recently passed away at the age of 66. Maccioni rescued Fiat and Chrysler from bankruptcy after taking the wheel of the Italian carmaker in 2004, and he multiplied Fiat's value 11 times through 14 years of canny deal-making. He was due to step down at FCA in April next year. Questions have been raised about how long Marcioni was ill and how much the company knew before it made the situation public. Fiat Chrysler said it knew nothing about the long-term medical condition of Sergio Marcioni after a Swiss hotel said it had been treating the chief executive for more than a year. A new campaign, Don't Die Wondering, has been launched to gain the attention of more than 1.6 million vehicle owners who have potentially deadly Takata airbags. The renewed calls comes after 24 reported deaths and nearly 300 injuries worldwide caused by misdeploying Takata airbag inflator ruptures. One person has died and another seriously injured here in Australia. The defective airbags can shatter shards of metal upon activation and its propelling mechanism is exposed to high levels of moisture. Australian vehicle owners are being encouraged to check automotive industry back site www.ismyairbagsafe.com.au All you need to do is enter a vehicle's registration number to see whether it is equipped with problematic airbags. People can also check vehicles owned by friends or family. The iconic Ford Falcon GTHO muscle car has been brought back from the dead. Former Ford Performance Vehicle engineers have revived a top-secret project to create a version of what should have been the final Fast Falcon. The last Falcon GT was intended to have an even more powerful supercharged 5-litre V8 than the one that finally made it into showrooms. The target was a mind-boggling 484 kilowatts and 750 newton meters of grunt, a significant step up from the final GT's 351 kilowatt and 570 newton meters. Ford's performance car division 
even built 10 test vehicles to show executives what the Falcon was truly capable of. However, the program was axed because Ford ran out of development time before the Broadmeadows factory closure. Now, almost two years after the final Falcon was built, the engineers responsible for the car that was to be dubbed GTHO have brought their dream to life. But the car won't be sold in Ford dealerships. When it comes to buying the revived GTHO, you need to already own a supercharged V8 Falcon and then have the $25,000 worth of upgrades fitted. In the UK, BP has bought Britain's biggest electric car charging network and the latest sign of major oil producers addressing the threat that low-carbon vehicles pose to their core business. The acquisition of Chargemaster, which has more than 6,500 charging points across the UK, will begin to result in the deployment of fast charges at BP's 1,200 forecourts over the next year. The deal is understood to be worth £130 million. There are more than 140,000 electric vehicles on UK roads, most of which are plug-in hybrid vehicles that can run for a short distance on battery power before switching to petrol or diesel. BP estimates the number of electric vehicles in Britain will hit 12 million by 2040, although some analysts put the figure much higher. Due to recently imposed tariffs on US cars sold in China, German carmaker BMW said it would raise the price of two US-made crossover sports utility vehicles. BMW said that it would increase maker-suggested retail prices of the X5 and X6 SUV models by 4-7%. The rate of increase suggests that BMW is willing to absorb much of the higher costs stemming from bringing the SUVs to China from its factory in South Carolina, underscoring the fierce competition amongst luxury brands in China. BMW's move comes after China imposed new tariffs on about $34 billion of U.S. imports from soya beans to cars to lobsters as part of the widening trade route. Beijing, which this year cut tariffs on all automobiles imported into China, slapped an additional 25% levy on U.S.-made cars as of the 6th of July. As a result, China now levies a 40% import duty on all cars imported from the United States. And finally, car brand Skoda is putting aside the much-publicised division between cyclists and drivers by focusing on female bike riders and why they ride. Females of various ages detail their connections to push bikes and the freedom it gives them as Skoda contends its cars are designed for cyclists. The advertising was based on studies which show that women cycle less than men across all age groups and aims to promote the positive effects of cycling on the body. As part of the campaign, Skoda will also partner with gyms to entice women back to cycling, as well as producing content to target mums across Australia. And that has been the news. Paul Stealing White is the executive director of Transport Alternatives, a non-profit organisation in New York City whose mission is to reclaim the streets of New York from cars by promoting safer, quieter, more healthy alternatives such as walking, cycling and using public transport. He came to Australia as a keynote speaker for the 2018 Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management National Conference in Perth. 
He is clearly not afraid to stand up and state his case, which he does with passion, but not with vindictiveness. He has had to push against some entrenched, old-fashioned thinking. After the conference, we had a chat about using all your available armoury, understanding where your opponents are coming from, and pursuing new ways of engaging the community. Paul, the other day you managed to get a one-on-one meeting with uh, what you might be your nemesis uh. in New York. Uh, that's very good. How did you manage to do that? Well, you know, Governor Cuomo, depending on the day, can either be our ally or our, our nemesis. You know, as advocates in New York City, which is a very tough town, you've got to really use every tool in the box. So on that particular day, I was arrested with a number of other people for blocking the street outside Governor Cuomo's office. We were trying to get his attention so that he would put his political might behind extending and expanding our very successful speed safety camera program. But, you know, on any given day, we might be issuing research or policy papers or doing some, you know, media work, legislation and and lobbying. But sometimes you really just have to put it on the line. And so standing there in the street with mothers who'd lost kids due to speeding drivers is something I would do again, you know, in a heartbeat. And in that case, it was a bit of a stunt. You know, we were out there trying to get attention, trying to get the governor's attention. And as you point out, the very next day, we had our meeting and it was a, um, a moment, I think, for us to put this on the governor's radar in uh, a very forceful way. But it's not the only armory or the artillery that you've got. It, it was one, the right one for the right time. Precisely. You know, and so I think we have a pretty diverse toolbox at my organization and in our movement in New York. And as you point out, the trick is knowing when to use the right tool at the right time. I've heard it best described as you're trying to create an orchestra because as an advocate, you're a one note band. You know, people know my point of view on things. But when I'm using my energy to build a coalition of business and health and other interests and they're saying it, It really is the orchestra that can, uh, as my friend said, makes politicians get up and dance. A one-note band does not. And so the success of our organization, our movement in New York, I think has had a lot to do with the extent to which we have been able to reach outside our own comfort zone and empower and activate new voices for people-friendly streets. I'll come on to that very strongly. I think there's some things. But where was he coming from, the governor? I think it's true everywhere that politics are difficult and that often it's not the issue at hand, it's other issues that are influencing the issue, or it's a history of distrust and dysfunction as is the, sta- you know, the, the state with our state government. I think for Cuomo, it was him not prioritizing this issue as something to push through the state legislature. So in this case, it was just a matter of elevating the issue to up the priority chain so that he was expending his precious political capital to uh, you know, wrangle it through the legislature. So I don't think that's particularly unique in the world. I'm sure, you know, similar dynamics Mm. elsewhere. But I I do think that right now what we have in New York is uniquely dysfunctional in that there is virtually nothing happening within our state legislature. It's like really at a standstill. Nothing's getting through. Nothing's getting passed. And this has to do with a long history of very complicated politics between the the Democrats and Republicans in this interstitial body called the... uh, this independent caucus. But that's neither here nor there. I, th- I think the, the, the point is that in order to make traffic, transportation, safety an issue, you've really got to fight. And right now, I think we are in a place in New York where the state of our streets, the state of our transportation system 
is right up there with education, housing, other big issues. And that wasn't always the case. It's also part of those things too, really, isn't it? Thank you. Yes, absolutely. It connects all of those things. And, and so that's one of the points we strive to make. And really using our crises in creative ways. I mean, uh, right now, one of our main subway lines is about to be shut down for 18 months for repairs. It was damaged during Hurricane Sandy, one of the critical tunnels under the East River connecting Manhattan and Brooklyn. And so it's an opportunity to see what the streets can really do when they are designed and managed for efficiency, for the throughput of people and not just cars. And so we have convinced both the Department of Transportation and the uh, MTA Transit Authority to undertake a people way solution where, that's what we call this, a marketing term, but to really take the arterial streets that are parallel to the subway above ground and completely reorient them around buses, bicycles, and people on foot. And so this will be a big moment for New York City streets, and hopefully we will prove the uh, efficacy of these new approaches that could be applicable to non-crisis scenarios or non-sort of urgent crisis scenarios and hopefully forge a new model for uh, all of our all of our big streets and so you know i'm not suggesting that that kind of um, crisis is facing perth right now but certainly there are moments when there are are challenges and it's an opportunity to prove some new approaches legacy thank you Yeah. yeah get a legacy out of it yeah and it's also it's an opportunity so it's not just running a train system it's moving people yep and i don't know if it's the case here but you know we're not building very many new train lines you know it's mm. it's it's too capital intensive and we don't have the money for it so it's more and more it's going to be about to squeeze more efficiency out of our existing surface network and the trouble with building if i may use that word train lines is that quite often you can only afford to build a project you can't afford to build a system yeah you, you can't expand it wide enough yeah one of the papers that came up here in the AITPM conference talked about the great opportunity of local trips, that our whole, uh, much of the public debate is about the long trip. Sure, sure. But the local trip has an immense I saw opportunity. That. I saw that, and I thought it was a, a really terrific point because I think what the public often hears when you're pushing biking and walking is, uh, oh, you, you're expecting me to, like, you know, bike or walk, you know, 20 Ks every day or whatever. And so what we discovered early on in New York was that an enormous share of driving trips and even transit trips were like very bikeable and walkable, very short. You know, something like 45% of driving trips were like under two and a half Ks or something. And so we told the public, look, we're, we're, that's what we're focused on here, you know, and, and, and we're not trying to tell everyone they have to get out of their cars for these longer trips. And by the way, the more we get people out of their cars for those short trips, if you do still drive, they're going to be out of your, <laughs> out of your way, you know, so... And that's a great point that we've gotten some traction with, you know, because without our public transit system and the biking and walking that we have now, you would not be able to drive in New York City, period, right? And so really, it's recognizing that sort of ecosystem that we have on our streets and getting beyond the sort of modalism, if you will, where it becomes drivers against bikers, against pedestrians and the rest, and recognizing that in a way, it's already a, modi, a multimodal environment. Even if you only drive or only take those other modes, there's still this interdependence at work. And moving forward, generationally, we're seeing this trend towards not identifying as a particular kind of transportation, but as someone who will use all of those modes within a week or even a day. Mobility as a service, not being Thank locked into yes. to a, to a mode. Yes, I interviewed someone else, Ryan uh, Falconer, for, mm. who presented on that, and I'm doing a paper on that as well. Oh, nice. You know, that is a notion that 
we have been locked into the past, history, our you know, culture and whatever. Yeah. I, I, if I always had a car, the only decision I make in a new trip is which route to take and where to park. Right, right. Whereas the decision might be, well, hang on, there are alternatives, sure. which are cheaper, easier, you know, a whole range well, of things. Well, this trend uh, you know, that you point out, David, is, is you know, the private sector is, is rushing ahead. You know, uh, Uber just bought a bike share company in the States and Lyft just bought uh, Uber's competitor just bought um, our bike share concern in, in New York City, which also runs bike shares around the country. And so you can tell there's this race to be first to market with this, you know, multimodal uh, platform that, as you suggest, will be the sort of ultimate mo- mobility as a service where, where they will integrate transit options as well. So that's clearly where it's going. And so I think it's, it's high time our streets reflect this new reality. Paul, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. And that was Paul Steely-White, the Executive Director of Transport Alternatives in New York, who is striving to help the community come together to get more livable cities. You're listening to Overdrive. And here we are again, and it is a pleasure to know that we are joined by Brian Smith. Go, Brian. G'day, David. And Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. Now, a man has been charged with multiple accounts of egging a vehicle. And, and the lovely point is his name is Benedict. A, a gentleman, I just thought that that may give us a chance to have some puns, perhaps. <laughs> I wonder how the eggs were prepared. That would be my f- first question. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Well, I've always always found the Benedict to be quite difficult to prepare. <laughs> so I wonder if he has a he has quite a ritual and a bit of a you know a bit of a knack to his egging of these cars. He leaves a signature too, really, doesn't he? Yes, uh, well, he's this, more this, a, a brunch kind of egger, <laughs> isn't he? Than the, <laughs> the sort of breakfast one. So there's that. That is kind of slightly upper upper crust isn't it that uh, mm. you know it's like i wonder if he had a particular style then about him about the way that he egged the cars mm. yes and he was doing it all hours so obviously it was an all-day breakfast oh. <laughs> did it also come with smashed avocado and a, a soy skim latte with a twist of lemon these were his friends david <laughs> Their nicknames. But this is kind of nominative determinism, isn't it? You always knew, like possibly his parents, his friends knew that Benedict would end up this way and that they're probably now regretting calling him Benedict. Right. And uh, and pretty glad they didn't nickname him Chainsaw or something like that. He's, he's, he's probably been teased with egg jokes for his entire life. Oh, so, so. this, you think that might have been... What drew him to the idea that like, yes. subliminally, the to- the torment that he's had, oh, I blame society. Hmm. <laughs> $3,000 worth of damage to vehicles. <laughs> Were they hard-boiled eggs? No, I, I think most of the damage was when he started throwing pigs. <laughs> If only it had have been salmon. <laughs> and, and, and there was more, more than 20 people reported um, having their cars egged. So um, they should open a restaurant. He's obviously capable of 
of well, producing, pieces, producing this dish in great quantity. He and his friends actually, uh, on a slightly serious note, stole a whole lot of food from like a, like a community food bin called the Little Free Pantry Box, which is outside a, a school, the Pioneer Elementary School. And it's left there, I think, for, for people who are down on their luck to be able to, to get food. He stole something like a whole bunch of food from this pantry box and then was able to, to throw stuff around. Um, and, and unfortunately, he was caught because CCTV, I think surveillance cameras, saw him. He claimed that he'd done the usual thing, I'll, I'll park the car, but I, I haven't left since. But yes. they were able to show him the surveillance video and he, he eventually, the story fully came out, kind of like a several-course meal. Ah, the entree he was sort of willing to admit that possibly his car was there and and then the main course and for dessert of course then he was required to uh to admit to placing a parking cone on a car <laughs> like a souffle like a crock and bush david well, i think well, a, he, he, a he's obviously crock and bush. he's obviously concerned about presentation it's, it's very important <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well he's working in the in the medium of plating it up on the bonnet i suppose <laughs> Yes, that keeps it warm, doesn't it? That's <laughs> true. <laughs> he could have claimed he was trying to cook it on the engine. Oh, yeah, that old thing. Yes. I think we've exhausted this story. Exhausted. Exhausted. <laughs> oh, that's appalling. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was a dangerous subject. He's a hardened, a hard criminal. <laughs> Hard-boiled. Ah, dear. Well, uh, talking about perhaps more domestic matters, Brian, a story? David, we often talk about the cost or the impacts of the rising cost of housing and the, and, and the difficulty in, in people being able to find affordable dwellings near where they work. And this impact falls mostly on people who are paid less and but who have critical service jobs. And bus drivers are, are some of those people who quite often will have to work because of the, the peaky nature of demand. They often have to sort of be available during the morning peak, and the afternoon peak, and they have a break in between. In, in the parlance, it's called a broken shift or a split shift. So you may sign on early in the morning to carry people for the peak hour, and then you have a break in the middle of the day and you work in the afternoon peak hour. And so you might have be working 10 or 12 hours across the day, but, but with a break in between, quite several hours or, or quite a substantial break in between. So in the US, in Silicon Valley, they're finding that bus drivers can't afford to live, or many of them can't afford to live within within 100 miles or 50 miles of where they work. And so increasingly, they've been sleeping at night during the week and also during the middle of the day when they're, when they're not working, sleeping in caravans in the car parks of bus depots. And so Silicon Valley has a particular problem where there's a whole bunch of these bus drivers who are actually living during the week in these parking lots of caravans and the, the, because they can't afford to live close and the time taken to drive away would be damaging to their health and, and the safety of their driving. Uh, difficulty being that land values as they increase now that the Silicon Valley bus drivers are finding that the, the bus company is having to sell the land that they're sleeping on to build apartments. So what do we do? This is a, a bit of an issue, isn't it, that we, we kind of overlook, but here's a whole lot of people who... Uh, earning wages probably a half or less than they would require to be able to live and rent 
near their own jobs. With autonomous cars, they say that we won't need as many parking spaces, so perhaps this is a usable place, if not just for bus drivers, but for low-cost accommodation. Yes. Yes, well, we the, the, the other thing, that a fear as much as anything else of autonomous vehicles is that we won't need as many bus drivers. <laughs> Well, indeed, that's for sure. That that you know, autonomous buses are probably one of the the first most obvious and efficient ways of using autonomous vehicles. In which case, these people well may be out there um, begging on the street. Although, ironically, if they if these bus drivers had an autonomous car to take them home, they could sleep on the way. Ah, I see. And so they could still go home, still do their hundred mile commute. And get some rest in the process. Children go out and sort of wake them up when they get home Mm, so they can turn around and head back again. So we really need to bring on the autonomous cars for the bus drivers. Okay, this is interesting. (laughs) The problem, Errol, and and I think, Brian, you just hinted at it, is they don't have to drive home if it's autonomous. They merely have to drive. Yes. Yes. Ironically, they only have to drive when they're at work. (laughs) Yes. Brian, you talked about the fact that it's low income and that. Some of these caravans are decidedly upmarket, and by the by, they're not cheap. I mean, there's a couple there with the extended sides, and I tell you what I, I want it is, is for an office. Oh, yeah, yeah, to be able to work in them. There's a couple of people there that are glorified utilities, you know, it's not much bigger than that from the picture we're looking at, but a couple of them are pretty sizable sorts of accommodation yeah and that's an obvious problem isn't it that they need to basically have dwellings for their family and then this additional dwelling Hmm. close to the city that they end up having to pay for um yeah this the effects of sprawl and the effects of of this kind of problem the housing cost problem are really being felt by people in lower socioeconomic demographics I think your point about the fact that they have a morning and an afternoon peak is exactly right as well. I've often wondered about that. It's I think sometimes if you've got strong unions, you end up where you get a huge amount of overtime, but in perhaps in America where they might not be as strong, then it is I'll employ you four, four hours in the morning and four hours in the afternoon, and it's up to you to look after yourself in between. Yes, yes, good mm. point. Mm. All right, gentlemen, it is good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, David. See See you, Errol. And that was Errol Smith and Brian Smith. And we were talking here on Overdrive, some unusual stories with some unusual twists about the more quirky aspects of motoring and transport. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, David Campbell, Errol Smith, Paul Steely-White and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.